Matthew chapter 5. I'm loving today. This is my favorite day of the whole week so far. Well, I guess it's the first day of the week, so we're off to a good start. Um, When Jesus saw the crowds, you know, I'm sorry. Sometimes when Jim has led our quiet time, he said, he will say, put a half smile on your face. I know where you got that. I know I'm making progress. I achieved a full smile <laughs> this morning. I really did. Okay, so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In American history, in American history, there have been a few sermons that have been immortalized. Early on, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, back in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. preached I Have a Dream. And more recently, Anthony uh, Campolo preached a message entitled It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And all of these, and all of these um, have left their mark on our, our spiritual consciousness. But for spiritual depth and poetry, not one of these sermons comes close to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> but is it really a sermon? Um, if we back up a few steps, what Matthew has just taken us through the the previous episodes are the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and then Jesus recruiting his disciples. And now these new recruits need some training. And the Sermon on the Mount serves that purpose. It's not so much a sermon as a revelation, you see. This is not something we could have deduced by studying the Hebrew scriptures even for centuries. What he says doesn't necessarily contradict so much as fulfill, but in fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures gives us a completely new way of looking at them, what we call our our Old Testament. So this is a revelation a revelation that is meant to transform his followers because the person who delivers the message must also be the message. So what Jesus has to say here is to define those that he sends to do his work. And as Jesus is his message, so this will help them to become his message. I guess ideally, someone should be able to look at me, this this person, and in me read the gospel of Jesus, see something of Jesus. Jesus introduces 
this message with the Beatitudes. Now, some people see a progression in the Beatitudes, like climbing a ladder or, or going upstairs. And so it can be like learning addition and subtraction so that you can get to your times tables, so that you can get to algebra and geometry and calculus and all those other things that I don't have any idea what they are. And uh, or, or like learning the ABCs so you can read. And then once you read, you can read about the cat and the hat. And then further on um, about Animal Farm or uh, the works of Shakespeare or the Bible. And I used to understand the Beatitudes this way. Um, that first comes poor in spirit and then mourn and then meek and so on. Um, but the idea of a ladder is that you've actually accomplished rising to the first rung and then you can go on and you accomplish that rung and then you can go on and you accomplish that rung. And I find that I keep coming back to blessed are the poor in spirit. Or to me it seems more random. So it's not necessarily like stages. The Beatitudes are are more like um, a cluster of fruit, uh, like the fruit of the spirit. It's all fruit, but there are these varieties. And that Jesus is assisting the person whose soul is reaching out for God. He's assisting that person who has these other longings and yearnings. And he's helping them to connect to find their, their way, especially into the kingdom of heaven. And so he re reveals what defines the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, uh, the qualities or, or attributes that all go together and they all work together. The Beatitudes are holistic. They describe not a bunch of different people, but one person. And a healthy soul is an integrated soul. When we are integrated in mind and emotion and body and spirit, that's good health. And good health in the kingdom of heaven is if we combine and integrate all of these qualities that we're going to be looking at. By the way, I don't intend to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. But then again, I'm so without a plan for the future that we just might. Uh, for now, for now, it's just the Beatitudes, okay? So Matthew, Matthew introduces the Beatitudes. Matthew is describing the setting where Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, at the end of the last chapter, crowds are coming from all over the place to hear him. And he sees the crowds, Matthew says, and he goes up on the hill. That's me. I see the crowds and I split. Um, it, now, it seems like the sight of the crowd triggered something in Jesus. And that's when he walks away. He hikes up a mountain. He hasn't invited them to follow. He hasn't said, come, follow me. Um, but when they do follow him, he welcomes them. And though he opens his mouth to teach the disciples, 
at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of uh, chapter 7, it says that the crowds who heard him were very impressed with him. Now, the Bible treats mountains, hills, even mounds, because the Hebrew word for altar originally meant just a mound of earth, in a special way. Mountains made a strong impression on the Hebrew mind, and they always had a reverence, and, and by reverence I'd even use the, the uh, Old Testament word fear uh, of mountains. They could be chaotic and demon-filled. They could be cultic. Um, when Israel moved into Canaan, there were cultic sites, pagan sites on every high hill and every mountain. Or they could be sacred places, places where people met God, like Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. So it's possible that this is a symbolic ascent to sacred space. Jesus finds his own space to deliver this message. Um, of course, there was a time when he climbed a mountain with three of his disciples into sacred space that was not symbolic. It was quite literal. And that was at his transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared to him. But... <coughs> Matthew refers to those that Jesus taught, to, to those who got the closest to him, as his disciples. The disciples in the Gospels are never just the 12, or rarely just the 12 apostles. It's all the followers of Jesus, and there can be hundreds and even thousands of them. And so if they are following him, he's going to treat them as disciples or trainees, and he's going to give them his word. Um, Gregory of Nyssa a fourth century theologian and preacher said, who here is an apprentice of the word such that he is willing to climb up the hillside from the, vallow, from the valley of shallow living to the spiritual mountain of breathtaking prayerfulness? And uh, the idea is he's, he's issuing a challenge and saying, will you climb the mountain with me the, into the Beatitudes? The text moves us then up but also down. He climbed up the mountain, and then he sat down to teach. And we're told that this is the usual posture of rabbis when teaching. They would sit. But they had chairs and benches that were made for this. Um, and you, you can still see them in some of the excavations in Israel. today. You probably still see them in, in modern uh, synagogues also. Um, but, and that's where you found their seats and benches, inside synagogues and the temple, buildings made to serve as religious boxes. And sometimes in our constructs of theology, we are creating boxes for God. Now, on this hillside, there's no special bench, but there are plenty of rocks. And if you've been in the Galilee area around the lake there, uh, you've seen all the basalt rocks from volcanic act from years ago. Uh, one of our tour guides explained that to us one year. He said that when God created the earth, he um, had rocks for the angels to spread around the world. And, and there are two angels assigned, assigned to spreading rocks all over the earth. And uh, one of them went one direction, the other went the other direction. The one who went the other direction came to Israel 
And it was his first stop, and he started to you know, spread rocks. And when he got to the Galilee, he just got so tired, he dumped the whole bag and left. <laughs> and it, it can seem that way. So they followed him up the mountain, but then he brought them back down to earth when he sat down and when he began to speak. Jesus enjoyed these natural environments. He taught on the lake shore. He taught along the roadside. He, he, he would make reference to mustard seed and birds of the air, to lilies of the valley. I mean, he'd go into the field with his disciples because in fields he found the kingdom of heaven revealed. He deliberately chose these earthly places and things wherein the stuff of our sensory experience becomes the stuff of our spiritual experience too, according to Evelyn Underhill. And because sometimes it was the natural thing that awakened us to the transcendent, that the kingdom of heaven would shine through and shine in what at first looks like nothing more than a loaf of bread or a cup of wine. This is Jesus' earthly spirituality, his embodied spirituality, that we don't have to leave this world to connect with God, but deep into this world and into our physical existence. You know, that there was a time when uh, Christians, or a, or a group of Christians, who saw the, the spirit as pure good and the body as spirit, the body as pure evil. And so their Christianity became an attempt to get away from the body, to either practice a rigid asceticism in which they tortured their body to get to a higher spiritual self, or they just ignored the body. Um, that's not a biblical view of the human person. And learning to listen to God in our own bodies uh, is a way of becoming mindful of his constant presence. Matthew's last detail in setting the scene, he tells us Jesus opened his mouth. And in scripture, this usually occurs for dramatic effect. It tells us that something important is about to happen, that what is going to be said has significance. And I think that we can amplify that exponentially when Jesus is sitting there and he opens his mouth and he, be he begins this message. From now on in this sermon, everything in the message rests on him who delivers it. In Jesus, God not only reveals himself to us, but he gives himself to us. The first word from Jesus' lips is blessed or blessed. And it's the first word that begins the next eight sentences. It's a famously biblical word, though today's Christians tend to brutalize it. Um, we use the word blessed 
to mean feel good. Oh, that really blessed me. And I'm saying, oh, that made me feel really good. Blessed are those who mourn. Now put those two together. Oh, mourning really made me feel good. Okay, maybe you needed a cry. Um, oh, being persecuted really made me feel good, especially when they took away my home and, and killed my husband and you know, all these other things that happen during persecution. Okay, blessed doesn't mean feel good. <clears throat> Generally, it means to be in a good place, to be in the, in the right place. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or sit in the seat of scorners nor stand in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. This person is in a right place. He doesn't go into the wrong places. He stays in the right places. This person has God's blessing. In um, the, the Old Testament, the idea is a soul that is prosperous in every way. That this person has enough crops, perhaps in abundance. Abraham was blessed. Uh, has cattle and flocks and um, lots of children. This was, and, and, and good health to enjoy it all. This, was, this person was blessed. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, the blessings are, are specifically dealing with fertility. That you'll have many crops, you have lots of livestock, you have lots of kids. Um, this uh, then is the person who prospers. I think in today's language, we'd say that what the Old Testament saw as a blessing was productivity and effectiveness resulting in success. That I consider myself blessed if I'm very productive and if what I do is effective and in that sense, I am successful in my endeavors. That's very much the Old Testament idea but it's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus changes the concept of blessing. The blessing of Jesus was transcendent. You cannot look at a photograph of a person and say, wow, look, this person is blessed. There he is standing on his 136 foot yacht with his favorite fishing pole in hand or you know, all of his children running around the deck, um, Jesus would say, um, that's not what I'm talking about. That the blessing that I'm talking about does not depend on desirable circumstances. In fact, they come to those whose situation may be very unpleasant. These blessings are not found in wealth and health and popularity. What Jesus puts before us is a heavenly state. And I, I don't know how better to, to explain it, but he's not talking about something that comes to us out of our material circumstances, though it may come to us 
through them, but they're not, not a direct product of our material circumstances. What are my circumstances doing to me today? Just not that this is important, but my circumstances today I find very oppressive, mostly mentally. I've taken a few steps backwards that way in, in terms of uh, revisiting the old darkness. And yet I'm blessed. Yet I still, when I rise above the muck, have this sense of a, of a heavenly state. If I breathe deep a couple of times and say the name Jesus, I experience the ways in which I am blessed. Because I'm not alone in this. Because I'm companioned by someone who's strong and good and empathetic and loving, kind. What Jesus puts before us then is transcendent. If we find the essence of love, if we find the essence of what is true and what is good, we will discover the hidden treasure that, um, that is buried beneath life's circumstances. And, and hope will lodge itself in our hearts, even in our darkest hour. So when Jesus says blessed, don't think, oh goody, he's going to hand out candy or dollar bills or $100 bills now, um, because that's not what this is. He's going to look at the poor in the crowd. And in Luke's gospel, it's rather stark. He says, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It, he qualifies it here in this sermon, blessed are you poor in spirit. I don't know what to call these attributes, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hunger, hungering and thirsting. If we should call these virtues, it's not a favorite term. If we should call them qualities, I'm not exactly sure you know, how it is to describe them, but they're independent of natural evolutionary processes um, like survival or adaptation or procreation. Um, there's a whole Darwinian psychology where human behavior is explained out of um, the, the needs of evolution. And not everyone buys into it. Um, but I think that it's very important that Jesus cannot be further from that. Um, that what he talks about does not require ideal adjustments to life circumstances. Oh, you handled that well. You got yourself through that. Look, you came out on top. That was a, a lose-win situation for you, but you turned around and made it a win-win situation or a win-lose situation. Congratulations. Jesus isn't talking about that at all. He's not talking about everything turning out all right by the end of the day. He's not talking about going to bed at night without any worries. But he is talking about, in those worries, finding the kingdom of heaven and in that, finding your blessing or your blessedness or your heavenly state or the transcendent presence of God. And in that, and, and trust in that, knowing that everything is fine just as it is.
have you ever been wronged by anyone? <laughs> okay, then let's assume you have. Any severe betrayal? Let's assume you've had that. Um, I have those names on a special prayer list. It's, uh, see, I have my prayer list like, you know, family and other relatives, um, Christian ministries I know about, close friends, people in reflection, uh, curses and deprecations. Uh, <laughs> and there have been times when I've been praying for someone who I, I felt I had been wronged by or betrayed by. And um, I just shake my head because I, I say, but God, look how well they're doing. Is that really fair? Is that really right? And, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just asking him to be reasonable. Uh, <laughs> and the conclusion that I've come to when I put it before him like that, and, and it's just like, you know, the expression on his face doesn't have to say anything. It's just the look he gives me. I, I come back and say, okay, Jesus, whoever you're smiling at, I want to smile at. If it pleases you to make their way easy, then I'm pleased that their way is easy. If, if it pleases you to, to let them do well, then I'm pleased. Whatever makes you smile makes me smile. I'm, I'm with you. Because I know he sees even better than I do what a person is and what they've done. And if he can smile at that person's prosperity, knowing so much more than I know, then I can too. I can smile because I trust him. I can smile because I want to please him. And I know that if I smile with him, that his smile turns to me also. So, these qualities or whatever they are, they're points at which the kingdom of heaven can enter into our circumstances. And they're points at which we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are doors. And they enable us to live in the world and beyond it at the same time. And really, that's, that's the success we're looking for. To be here, but to be beyond it. To be here, but not anchored in it. Having our anchor someplace else. Because all the anchors in this world shift. You know, if, if I dropped my anchor in the stock market, oh boy, we're up today and down tomorrow and up in the morning and down in the afternoon. And halfway up in the evening, um, what a miserable person I'd be. What a, what a vacillating, lost, chaotic life I'd live. Blessed, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I don't pretend to fully understand what this means, poor in spirit. I know that there's nothing inherently blessed about poverty of any kind, whether it's you know, fiscal poverty or spiritual poverty. It's not 
it's not, the blessing is not in it itself. So its value must be outside the bare experience of poverty. And it's most likely a state that poverty of spirit creates that God values. I don't think that God looks at someone in poverty and say, and, and say to them, oh, you, you have no idea how blessed you are for not having the things of this world, for not knowing where your next meal will, will come from, where suffering the pangs of starvation, you're so blessed. I don't think God ever sees that and says that. I think when he sees it, he taps some disciple of his on the shoulder and says, you better do something about this. You, you can't allow this to go on. You have the means. Get to it and do it. It's most likely what poverty of spirit produces, and, and this is something that God is pleased with. Okay, so I want to understand poor in spirit. Let's begin with the opposite. What would wealthy of spirit look like? Blessed are those who are wealthy in spirit. Well, that's, that's hard to say, but in the previous chapter when Jesus is tempted, one of his temptations, the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he says to Jesus, this could be yours. And you could have it today. Act now um, and, and, and walk away with this in your pocket. The price is right. And, and these things, the kingdoms of the earth uh, and all of their glory, all the honor that comes with power and all the status that comes with wealth, um, well, these are things that appeal to the wealthy in spirit. And whatever it takes to acquire as much as possible of the kingdoms of earth and their glory Ambition, insatiable desire, uh, aggressive pursuit. This wealthy, spirited person may be an atheist. It's easy to imagine that. But they may be very religious, a very pious person. And they're thinking, just imagine what I could do for God if I had all this. What if I had the world at my feet? What if I became the most popular person in the US or in the world? Just think what I could do for God. And there are people who are not able to distinguish between their rise into wealth and glory and what might be God's will for them. And some of it only find it at the end of their lives when no one remembers them anymore. And then they add up the value of their life. And it comes to a lot lower digit than what they had enjoyed through most of their life. This, <clears throat> this is why I think Jesus was impervious to the temptation. He had no attachment to these things. He wasn't trying to be uh, the owner of all rather the savior of all. I think we get a hint of what poor in spirit means in Psalm 51. 
where the psalmist wakes up and he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. It's like, it's like he realizes what he has gone through has been enlightening for him. And he says, you know what? We have this temple, we have all these offerings and the, these performances in worship, and that's not really what you want. He says, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I think that's poor in spirit. God can work with this. God cannot work with arrogance. James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God can work with the broken person who comes to him and says, God, I have nothing to give you, nothing to offer you. I'm just a broken person. And, and I'm a broken person when it comes to religion. I pray and my prayers aren't answered. I read the Bible and I don't get it. I uh, try to tell other people about you and I just get in arguments. Um, I'd like to go into a Christian community and have the appearance of someone who's saintly or close to God or you know, does all the right things, loves enough, cares enough, gives enough, helps enough, you know, is big enough. But I'm not, I'm not any of that. But the, the psalmist says, but now I get it, you don't want any of that. All I can bring to you today is my broken heart. And now I realize that's all you want. I can't even afford an offering. Amen. So I just bring my broken heart. And you're pleased with that. And he is pleased with that. There is a potential found in poverty of spirit, a potential for an opening in our lives that grace can pour into. And so in my brokenness of spirit, I can come to God and say, um, I'm empty. I don't have anything left. And God says, okay, I can fill that. I can do something with that. I can do something about that. Um, maybe a potential for looking past the visible. Because I realize, well, I'm not going to ever have everything my neighbor has. A potential for looking through natural things and seeing the kingdom of heaven. And, and brokenness, this poverty of spirit, this is not something I have to work at. What are you doing in that meat grinder? I'm going for a broken spirit. You don't have to. I may have to learn to accept it. Of course, the paradox is the closer I get to God, the clearer I see my poverty of spirit. I don't see it at first, but the closer I get to Jesus, the more I see my poverty of spirit. I, I may have to be shown it when God removes the facade I've created that I thought was myself, um, I may have to confess it, but I don't have to manufacture it. That poor in spirit catches me where I am. In chapter 4, verse 24, it talks about the people who come to Jesus, or the people who are brought to him, the paralyzed, the blind, the, the, the lame, and so on. And... Uh, I come with, with what I already
already have, and I present it to God. He, he doesn't want any trophy I've earned. Do you get it? Um, okay. Jesus is so incredibly compassionate. He's looking at a bunch of broken people, and he says, you know, you're so close to the kingdom of heaven, you don't even see it. You think you have to get somewhere? You're already there. So stop, stop trying to, to be something else than what you are right now. Be what you are. Be where you are. Be who you are. And bring it to me. And anything that's missing, anything that's broken, I'm here to fix. I'm here to heal. I'm here to fill. I'm here to solve the riddle of your life. I think we need to, to link poor in spirit with repentance because repentance is, is Jesus' central message so far. Um, but by repentance, remember that I'm thinking a change of mind, a rewiring of the brain, which is possible at any age. Um, I think that we need to link this with righteousness because this is certainly a central theme in the Sermon on the Mount and it's been another central theme of Jesus to this point at his baptism. tells John it, it is becoming for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I think we need to link this with redemption, of course, because, because God wants to redeem everything about me. There's no part of my life he doesn't want to redeem. And if I hold something back, well, I don't want to tell him about this. I mean, though he knows, I don't want to tell him about this. How can he redeem it if I don't bring it into the light for him? So whatever it is, I, I say it and I bring the name of Jesus to it and he redeems it. <clears throat> Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to go into that this morning, but in the coming weeks, I hope to. The Beatitudes are the gateway to the Sermon on the Mount. They're the gateway to everything that Jesus taught and all that he was. And they're the gateway to the kingdom of heaven that we want to enter. They're the gateway to our spiritual journey, which is our life with Jesus, our life in Jesus, and Jesus indwelling us. And this, this one beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is like a spiritual reset button. You can always come back to it. If ever you feel like you've wandered from God, like, like you're not as tight as you used to be, like you did something really wrong and it needs to be fixed, this is the reset button. You come back to God poor in spirit. And it's not like you're not still living the other blessings, but it's like, it's like the first oh gosh, what do you call it in Alcoholics Anonymous? The first step. Um, it's that confession of not being able to handle this on your own, of being overwhelmed. That's a spiritual reset button too. 
this is a spiritual reset button so you can come back and say, okay, it is not that God is so worried about my fall, but that he's so overjoyed about my bouncing back. Would you stand, please? May God's blessing rest on everyone who's entered these doors today. May God's love be poured out on all who today feel poor in spirit. And may he continue to go with us this week, hearing us, accompanying us, and taking us through whatever lies ahead. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.